0: So, you come to the nonprofit sector to make a difference. You come because you have fire in your belly about an issue, a cause, to help level the playing field, right a wrong, bring beauty to the world. You know this list, it goes on and on. That fire ignites you. Literally, it propels you to work as hard as you possibly can. And that fire is an essential ingredient to five star nonprofit leadership to successful fundraising, for lobbying an elected official, for making music that moves people to tears. What if the fire goes out? No fire. An absence of fire. Burnout is the absence of fire. That's what burnout means, literally. I wanted to talk to someone who really understood what causes burnout and how you can address it. Someone who had experienced it. And someone whose recipe for not burning out does not include, have you seen that meditation app? Someone who talks about it more deeply. I found Hamza Khan, and you're really going to appreciate what he has to say. You will think he's talking directly to you, because he is in some ways, and you will think long and hard about his keys to avoiding burnout. In our conversation, we talk about good stress, and yes, there is such a thing. The distinction between an overachiever and a high performer. We'll talk about death by work. And he asks you to consider if you would prefer to be a human doing or a human being. Not gonna lie, I need this conversation as much as I'm guessing you do. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at JoanGary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Hamza Khan is an award winning marketer, best selling author of The Burnout Gamble. And global keynote speaker, whose TEDx talk, Stop Managing, Start Leading, has been viewed more than a million times. He empowers youth and early talent through his work as managing director of Student Life Network, Canada's largest and most comprehensive education resource platform. And you can learn more at hamzakhan.ca. And that's H A M Z A K H A N.ca. H-A-M-Z-A, welcome.
1: Hey, Joan. Wow, that was perhaps the best, most eloquent, most invigorating introduction I have ever received on a podcast. My heart is full. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It is an absolute (laughs) honor, and uh, I'm so delighted to be speaking with you.
0: We're so happy to have you here as well. So if anyone hears a dog in the background, I just want to say it's not Hamza's dog. It's my dog. I don't even know. Tom, so do you have a dog?
1: I, I do not have a dog. And if I did, uh, and this dog was as excited as your dog is right now, it would make for a very chaotic podcast experience, listening <laughs> experience, I must say. Because <laughs> I just moved into my new condo here in New York City. And uh, if you're watching this on video, you can see I have a very Spartan background behind me. No furniture. I'm in a very makeshift Podcast recording studio, but when we do our second episode together, Joan, it will be soundproofed and it'll look it'll look delightful. And who knows, there might be a dog.
0: There, you know what we can we can get excited at that prospect. Um, <laughs> although my dog does not understand New York City because she only understands grass. Okay. Anyway, hey. <laughs> let's start with an important question, Hamza. Um, I think our sure. listeners probably need to know what qualifies you as someone we should be listening to about burnout?
1: Ooh, what a question. And this is a question that uh, is perhaps not good for my stress, considering that I struggle with imposter syndrome. I never believe that I'm qualified for anything. And I'm sure during this conversation, we'll talk about the different factors that contribute to burnout, but that's certainly one that contributes to my burnout when it has happened in the past, but now contributes to my stress this um, imposter syndrome, or as I'm reconceptualizing it, uh, internalized self-hate, which Mm. let's, uh, let's open up that can of worms at some point. So what qualifies me to speak about burnout? Great question. I will say right off the bat, I'm not a medical professional. So take what I'm going to say with a healthy serving of salt. But- With that being said, I am somebody who has experienced occupational burnout, not just once, not just twice, three times distinctly in my life. The second time I experienced it, or the last time I experienced, I should say, uh, was in 2014. And unlike the previous times when I experienced burnout, this time it happened in public view. It happened in front of my friends, in front of my family. It happened in the workplace that I was at. And uh, it was very costly to me. It was very costly to me, not just monetarily, but also in terms of relationships, social capital. And uh, that is the catalyst for the journey that I have been on since. What I tried to do after I burned out, and this was back in 2014, a time when our language and understanding with regards to wellness, burnout, stress was relatively nascent in the context that we understand today in August of 2022. I tried to emerge from that pit of having experienced complete occupational burnout with the tools that I understood, productivity, peak performance. And I used that set of tools that were familiar to me to emerge from that pit. And in doing so, I arrived at a really interesting conclusion, which is the very tools that are required, the very strategies and tactics that are required to reduce burnout and to prevent it from happening are also the same ones required to achieve peak performance. And so the mantra that I have adopted from that journey of of emerging from my last episode of occupational burnout was that it's better to prioritize calmness and consistency over chaos, over the chaos that is part and parcel of the hustle culture, if you will, that I was submerged in. Since then, I have written a book, The Burnout Gamble, which you mentioned in your introduction. I have written a second book, Leadership Reinvented, which draws on some of the concepts in The Burnout Gamble. I am a keynote speaker. I have spoken to hundreds, if not thousands, of organizations around the world from bootstrapped nonprofits all the way to Fortune 500 companies. I've consulted for several companies. I'm coaching executives all the time. And I'm currently engaged in graduate research on the upstream factors which influence burnout. And uh, this, as I'm sure we're going to cover during the podcast, Joan, is well within the purview of the leaders listening to this. And I imagine most, if not all, of the listeners of this podcast are leaders.
0: Yeah. So the open to this podcast is uh, is directed specifically at nonprofit leaders who mm-hmm. who are, have, I think, a greater tendency towards this burnout, and actually, as I, I talked about this notion about fire, have this fire in their bellies about their work mm-hmm. that they can't afford to have go out. So it's really right. very, very interesting. So do you feel like the word burnout is overused? Maybe not as overused as like the, like the word awesome, you know? Like awesome, which is, of course, it's supposed to be for, you know, Mount Rushmore or something, and it's it's for like a good shot at pickleball now, you know? But right. like right what ex- so so i wonder let's let's make be really clear about what it is what it's not and yeah let's let's sure. let's do a definition of term
1: yeah 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 great so responding to the first part of your question joan i believe that the term burnout is both overused and underused simultaneously depending on the context These days, and I have no problem with it because I feel like it's still laying the foundation for the right conversation to happen, but Uh people who are experiencing run-of-the-mill everyday stress combined with some fatigue are writing that off as burnout. And it's not the same thing. Burnout has been reclassified not that long ago, actually, by the uh, World Health Organization. In 2019, they medicalized burnout. They ascribe three dimensions to it, and if memory serves me well, and I should really know this because I speak about this every single day, but it's uh, increased fatigue, uh, distance from one's work, and feelings of negativism and cynicism about your work.
0: Okay, so wait a minute. It's essentially losing fire. Go go through them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Do them. Do them again, because I think the people. I think if there were there, I just imagined thousands of people going. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep. yep.
1: Okay, let's break it down. Let's break it down. And I'm really proud of myself for having remembered all three of those. So (laughs) it's uh, feelings of fatigue and tiredness, like excessive fatigue and tiredness. So that one is self-explanatory. At the end of the workday, if you feel spent, if you feel like your battery has gone to zero and you're having a hard time recharging it, that's one of the dimensions of burnout, according to the World Health Organization. Second is, and these are not sequential by any means, Uh, increased distance from one's work. So you're doing the work, but you don't quite know why you've lost your sense of purpose. You're just going through the motions. And then the last one in this sequence is feelings of negativism and even cynicism about your work. You've just become an absolute nightmare to work with if you're part of a team. You know, you're short, you're terse, you're easily agitated. Now, what's interesting is burnout was first described uh, using the way that we understand it today in the 70s by Dr. Herbert Freudenberger and Dr. Gail North. And they created the term in a very reactive way to what was happening through their clinical studies. They needed a way to describe what was happening to personal care workers, to human service workers that were losing their fire. And it was great that they put together this word or this term rather, we call it burnout right now colloquially, but the proper term is burnout syndrome. And there's two parts to this idea. First is the metaphor of humans as energy systems that gain or lose energy. Mm -hmm. And the second component, which is really important to talk about in this podcast, and I think that this is where people who are conflating everyday stress with burnout need to remember that burnout is a syndrome. It's a collection of symptoms. So the three Mm -hmm. elements that I described as part of WHO's definition, it's important to factor those in. So if you're experiencing all three or two of them simultaneously, that's when you can ask the question, is this everyday stress or is this burnout? But Like I said at the beginning, I'm glad that people are becoming more accepting of burnout. They're talking about it more. And even if they're not experiencing it, it's good because it's normalizing this discussion. Because when I experienced burnout for the first time in 2007, it was not something I could talk about, Joan. I experienced it working as an intern at a major record label. I had put in three days of work consecutively. I think I slept maybe on the bus rides home, power naps, if you will. I was just completely depleted. I was high on caffeine. And uh, I crashed at the end of those three days and it crashed while I was at the office. So I ran into the bathroom, I locked the door behind me and I blacked out. I think I woke up 10 to 12 hours later and I documented this story, recapped it in my book, The Burnout Gamble. And uh, I was so disoriented when I woke up, Joan, but my disorientation gave way to fear. Did you? And that was. Did you, sorry, did, ahead,
0: did you know what was happening to you?
1: No, I did not know what was happening to me, nor did I want to know what was happening to me because I felt like whatever had happened, if my boss or my colleagues were to find out that it happened, that I would be perceived as less productive, that I would be Uh perceived as somebody who couldn't hack it in the industry. So I swept that episode under the rug and I just went back to doing what I was normally doing. But seven years later, when it caught up with me again, that's when I was like, ah, okay, this is not stress. Because when I did experience it the second time around, I said I, I burned out three times. Right, the first time was in my undergrad. The second time was in 2007 at the record label, and the four, the third time, the last time I experienced it, 2014, was working at a major education institution in Toronto, Canada. And this was the fascinating thing because I was working in a place that spoke the language of holistic well-being, of um, right. physical, emotional, and <laughs> mental well-being, that provided me with all of the community support that goes a long way towards mitigating symptoms of burnout. And on top of that, I had probably one of the best benefits packages in the country. I mean, if I wanted to, I could get two massages a day. Right. So I had every reason not to burn it, but I still burned out. And that's when I was like, if I don't change what's going on over here, if I don't change my approach to this work and my relationship with stress, then I would burn out again and again and again.
0: Okay. So I think there are people that are listening- that say, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've, I've always been someone who works really hard. I'm, you know, I'm a real high performer. I'm a type A. That's just that's that's who I am. You talk about these words overachiever and high performer, right. and how does it, how does that because there are people who live in that world generally, and I would say that for the folks listening to this podcast, live in this world almost exclusively, right? You're. Mm. We can continue to talk about this, but certainly as a nonprofit leader, I experienced this where everything matters all the time. There's so much on yeah. the line, yeah. right? It's not like,
1: everything, you know, right. You're not all selling
0: widgets. You're not selling widgets. Uh, it's not about whether the couch comes from, you know, from West Elm on time or not. You know, many yeah. of the people who are listening here are saving people's lives, right? And right. so, right. People who are drawn to this kind of work are high performers and they tend to be overachievers. And maybe you can talk a little bit about either the distinction in between those two words or the connection between those two words sure. and your propensity to burn out.
1: Ooh, there's a lot to unpack here. I, I appreciate the coherence with which you stack these questions, Joan. It is remarkable. It is a skill that I hope to bring to my own podcast where I hope to have you as a guest someday. So these people who live in the type A headspace all the time, I see you, I understand what you're going through. I understand why you're doing what you're doing. So much of your identity is tied up in being good at what you do. You're receiving all kinds of reward from the system, for lack of a better word, to continue doing this. But as I'm you know, meditating on for my next book project, you can love capitalism, but capitalism does not love you back. Trust me. It is insatiable you're good enough is not good enough. You can keep on working and continue to go down this bottomless hole that only ends with your exhaustion, your depletion, your fire being taken out. And trust me, this is coming from one of the most productive people that I know. And this is something that I feel particularly qualified to speak about. I mean, I have uh, spoken about productivity At the highest possible level, you can go, if you use Asana task management system, part of their onboarding process includes things that are written for them. I would say that so much of my identity and my success as a thought leader was built upon the foundation of optimizing time, energy, and tension. But without purpose, without a definition of what enough looks like, The inevitability of this style of work is burning out. You lose your fire eventually because, like I said, capitalism is insatiable. Now, bringing it to the nonprofit context, this is really interesting for me because I believe that even though I operate in a for-profit world, for-profit space, I have the heart and I've cut my teeth. In the nonprofit space, particularly within higher education, and then I also have a nonprofit that I'm looking for. Hopefully, your advice, Joan, and the nonprofit <laughs> leadership lab community to inspire how it is that I can truly make an impact with this nonprofit, which you can speak about later. But um, I know that uh, you know we are trying to save the world. We're bleeding hearts. We wear our hearts on our sleeves. And the first documented case of occupational burnout was Miss Jones. Uh, She was a healthcare worker working in the nonprofit space. It affects us as nonprofit leaders harder than it does anyone else, I believe. I think the first, when they did a study about who, who experiences burnout the most, I think we are second to pilots, believe it or not pilots experience burnout to a higher degree, which is really concerning for those of us who are feeling safe to fly again. (laughs) But (laughs) pilots followed by healthcare workers and then anybody working in the human services industry, which I would consider all of us in the non-profit space, either directly or indirectly to be in the human services industry. And it's particularly frustrating because we see that so much of the reason why we're experiencing stress is because we're cleaning up after the mess of capitalists. We're cleaning up after business messes. We're trying to undo the destruction to the environment, to the human condition that precedes us by not even generations, but millennia in some cases. So what this does, unfortunately, for those of us who aren't familiar with the distinction between stress and burnout, is we rely on patterns of work that have brought success in the past. And we just work harder. We believe that the way that we achieve more is by working harder. But that's a slippery slope, and that uh, ends with burnout every single time. And worse, by the way.
0: Right. Let's break down burnout into some stages. Now I know you talk about okay. um there are I know there are 12 of them. Mm-hmm. And we can actually include all 12 of them in the show notes, but let's give people who are listening, although people who are listening actually took the time to listen instead of, mm-hmm. instead of doing something else, you know, high performing or overachieving. So yep. Yep. Um, so hats off to you for listening to this conversation. Talk a little bit about the stages so people can sort of really get a, get a feel for the fact that this is actually a, the real thing that has component parts.
1: Sure. And and maybe I can, I can personalize this a little bit by speaking about how it is that I know when I'm approaching burnout. So the first yeah. three stages, it's really interesting because as a fellow type A, as an executive, as a leader, as somebody who prides themselves on being productive, what's interesting is that I have to flirt with burnout a little bit to be at my operational best. But as a result of the work that I'm doing and conversations just like this, I now can tell when I'm approaching the red line. So the first three stages of burnout look like this. The first stage is the compulsion to prove oneself. And let's be honest, who doesn't feel that, right? Joan, you and I feel that. The fact that we're doing a podcast together, we have this innate desire to prove ourselves. Right Now, I believe that we have the best of intentions. We're doing it for the purposes of being of service to others. But we know that in order to be of service to the amount of people that we want to be, we have to engage in this sort of dance of, building our personal brands, of creating content and whatnot too. And there's nothing wrong with that. But nevertheless, we need to acknowledge that we do have this compulsion to prove ourselves, which naturally leads to working harder. And many of us listening to this podcast right now are working harder. You know, we're doing in excess of 40 hours a week. Some of us are working 10, 12 hours a day. And that's just the work. When you factor in family commitments as well, looking after dependents, children, dogs, if you will, whatever the case may be. And not everybody's 168 hours a week is created equally. We don't always have the same raw template of time. Some of us may have health conditions that prevent us from focusing for extended periods of time. I have a friend, near dear friend, who uh, suffered a concussion recently. Mm-hmm. So she's only able to give maybe two to three hours of dedicated time before she has to turn off all screens. Just imagine that. So her 168 hours a week's week, we looks very different than the rest of us. So that's working harder. And then the third stage, and this is where I realize that, hey, you know what, Hamza, something's wrong. You need to pull back a little bit over here, which is neglecting needs. And this is when you start skipping lunches, you uh, maybe work through evenings, maybe you work through weekends, maybe your living space is in disarray. Maybe you're neglecting your partner. When you start neglecting the needs that you have uh, in terms of replenishing your energy, your physical energy, emotional, mental, and spiritual energy, that's when for most people, you begin falling down the slippery slope of the 12 stages of burnout if you're moving through burnout in linear fashion, which is how it typically happens. But it is possible, Joan and listeners, to skip steps. And this is illustrated by the Holmes and Ross Stress Index, a list of, I think, 50 to 70 different uh, typical life transitions that people go through. And each of them has a numeric value attached to them. And if in a calendar year, you rack up more than 300 points then you're at severe risk of experiencing injury or worse, even fatality. So even though you might be listening to this thinking... I'm not going through burnout right now. It might just take the death of a loved one to jump you from stage zero all the way to stage 12, which is complete mental, physical, and emotional exhaustion, collapse, essentially, the extinguishing of the fire.
0: I think about, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, I think about Please. the need neglecting thing. Mm-hmm. So I'll speak only, I, I'll speak for myself and say that I really love what I do. Like, I really mm. love what I do. And The work often is completely fueling for me. It actually, it Mm -hmm. further my light gets brighter, my fire gets brighter, not dimmer. Yep,
1: same. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. And so how do I know? I worked through lunch because I was working on a my (laughs) next column for the Chronicle of Philanthropy, or I worked, you know, or I worked late because I really wanted to help this client who had a speech coming up and had asked me to edit it. Sure. Some of that is just, some of that is me, and some of that right. is, is because I'm actually quite fueled by the work. How do I know the difference?
1: Right. Great, great distinction to make. And I'm very similar to you, where I get energized by the work that I do. And that's because I've been tinkering, as you have over your career, with exercising the things from our day-to-day that we don't like to do, that we hate doing and supplanting them with things that we love doing and there's research out of yale university by dr kelly mcgonigal who wrote a great book called the upside of stress and her research found that simply reframing an experience that produces bad stress and yes there is such a thing as good stress as well all not all stress is created equal by replacing something that you would typically associate with bad stress i.e the stress that causes pain suffering and distress And reframing that as something worth doing, something that is healthful, plentiful, that gives you joy, that gives you purpose, that brings you closer to your sense of happiness, it's enough to change your body's reaction to the stressor. Yeah, yeah, So there's that. By reframing the stressor, it's fantastic. And then you also, over the course of becoming a high- performer versus an overachiever, you develop resilience. So you're able to better withstand the stress that comes from putting in longer hours and doing things that you love doing. And I understand, especially for you know nonprofit leaders, so much of what we do is things that we got to do in order to get to do the things that we want to do. And sometimes it just sucks. And sometimes we just have to roll up our sleeves, especially for executive leaders, nonprofit leaders, are listening to this, watching this thinking, wow, I don't have any staff. I can't really delegate. I have to do the books. I have to do HR as well. I have to put together everything. I have to edit the website. I have to record our podcasts and be in the field and do the work too. I get it. But maybe rephrase this or reframe this as the thing you got to do in order to get to do the thing that you want to do and see that the end goal of what you're doing is making the world a better place. You are saving lives. You are transforming the world for our children, our children's children. And hopefully what that might do for you is allow you to reframe the thing that you hate doing right now and see that as something that you actually really love doing because it's connected in a maybe, maybe even a divine way to your transcendent purpose.
0: You know, it's interesting. I, I have a different reaction to that in the sense that mm-hmm. I don't disagree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I guess I would add to it another attribute of the high performer, overachiever, nonprofit leader is a certain kind of need for control. So uh, that we need to do all the things. And so when you just yeah. describe the person who's doing all the things... If I were coaching that person and I, I would push with compassion and say, do you have to do all the things?
1: Exactly. Is there
0: a volunteer? What, how are we? How are we engaging volunteers? How are we working with our boards? And I believe that we have some self-inflicted burnout that comes yes. as a result of – Because we want to prove ourselves, which is stage one or something, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We want to prove ourselves. So, oh my gosh, I I can't delegate it to somebody because uh, it might not be perfect. And I'm I'm accustomed to, to, to being perfect. So isn't sort of the need for control at play here when it comes to burnout?
1: Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. And, and so we're, we're very much aligned over here. And I've got a confession to make. So when I speak about occupational burnout, how to beat it, I actually change the message for corporations, for for profits, because they don't understand the thing that you and I get that this community of nonprofit leaders understands, which is there is an end, like there is a definition of enough that we can explore as individuals, but also as organizations. And I don't think corporations are quite tuned into that. They're still operating with a 20th century management playbook, or they're operating from a place of fear or greed, or maybe both that doesn't have an end state in mind. They're just constantly reacting to this nebulous market that's always changing. Like I said, capitalism doesn't love you back. So they don't have a north star that is well-defined. They have a vision. Maybe they have a mission, but the mission spans a very finite amount of time, but they don't actually understand fundamentally what enough means. And then this becomes a problem for frontline employees who are trying to beat burnout because they don't actually know if their contributions are enough. And so their natural reaction is perfection, engaging, and overachieving. But I think that we, as a nonprofit community, have a better uh, understanding of this this dilemma, if you will, mm-hmm. this this overachieving dilemma. And we can define what enough looks like for us. And yes, for some of us, that might be quite ambitious because again, we need control. But it is really important, especially if we're taking a coaching question over here, like I, I love your question, Joan, of do you need to do all of this? What does enough look like for you? Right. Is it uh, you know applying the smart framework? is your definition of enough specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound? If it's not, then you expose yourself to the 12 stages of burnout and uh, you extinguish the fires of productivity time and again.
0: I think there are two things that your comments make me think about is is I think that it's important, and uh, after the break we'll talk about leadership, it is important to always be thinking about I I use this phrase in my on my team a lot. What is the best and highest use of you? Right, love that. What is the best? What's the best and highest use of you? And that typically correlates awfully nicely with the activities that put gas into your tank. Right. We did this exercise once as part of as there's a really nice personality assessment. I want to say Marcus Buckingham, and it's called Standout. And as part of this personality assessment, we did a, a sort of an off-site and had a, a facilitator come in. and we had to keep track during the course of a week. It was a very easy exercise actually, where we had to every day, at the end of each day, all of us had to write down a couple of things that happened during the day that we activities that we loved and a couple of activities that we loathed. So it was called the mm-hmm. love it or loathe it list. Great. And then we love shared it. that. And it was fascinating. It was fascinating how like some one member of our team all the things that she loved were all the things someone else loathed. Loatheed. And right and we were actually able to have some really good conversations about how we might think about our work differently, yeah. especially if right work based on based on <laughs> and it of course it turned out that the, that the love stuff also kind of correlated to the, you know, what I call the best and highest use. I often use this phrase in coaching and in my nonprofit leadership lab is that one of the big antidotes to burnout is by continuing to touch the work. Is that mm. right? Is that chapter of my book called you know i came to change the world not conduct performance reviews right can performance okay. reviews are not exactly fueling activities no, but when I was the last them. time right? <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you went to the you know t- when you talk to a client or you, right, or went down the hall and asked the staff member to tell you a story about the lobbying work that they did, mm. or right? And that, so there are, and we're going to talk about that as well as just sort of what are the antidotes? How do you avoid them? How do you keep yourself from going well past stage three? So just interesting, this notion of You have some control over this. And by the way, if I'm a donor to your organization, I might actually be paying you to be thinking strategically about the future of the organization. I mean, my donation, when I think about, gee, I'm donating, I hope that this organization and the leader of this organization is thinking about strategy and innovation and not looking at cash flow,
1: right? Exactly, exactly. Ooh, Couple of
0: just a quick things and then we're to take a quick break and come back. Sure. I was really intrigued that you talked about age. You talk about millennials actually being more prone towards burnout than any other age group. And right. I was really surprised about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, this is interesting. So the burnout gamble, I did not I did not seek to publish a book on burnout. In fact, to this day, there's there's a small part of me that is um a little bit resentful that I've become the burnout guy because it's put me in a very difficult position where I have to disclose to tens of thousands of people that uh, I'm not as productive as I think I am. That uh, I actually, at one point in my life, I was I was overproductive. I was counterproductive. I was anti-productive. And uh, you know, I caused a lot of professional harm, not just to myself, but to my team and to the organization. But the burnout gamble was interesting because It was inspired by some journaling that I was doing, some reflective writing that I was encouraged to do by coaches and medical professionals to help me process what I had gone through. And in that writing and the discovery process, one of the things that I wondered was, why did this happen to me? I was a millennial at the time. I still am a millennial. I guess you're always a millennial. Yeah, I was just gonna say, yeah. uh, (laughs) (laughs) You don't age out. Jen wasn't around back then. (laughs) I don't age out. I'm, I'm, I'm forever in this box of being a millennial. But one of the questions I had to ask before I started down this process of transitioning from writing for myself to writing for a larger audience was how real is this thing? Like, are, are, is it getting worse or is this just a generational thing? And it turns out that every subsequent generation has been experiencing stressors to, uh, Greater uh, to to a degree of greater frequency and intensity, such that I'm comfortable saying right now that Gen Z is more prone to burnout than I am, mm. and I uh, so much of that is because of this continued insistence by the modern world to. Medicalize and individualize the problem of burnout. The more that we continue to medicalize and individualize the problem of burnout and not look at the systemic and upstream factors in the face of a world that's becoming more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, every subsequent generation will experience burnout to a higher degree. So, we actually, in order to solve the problem in the future, we have to move to the past.
0: Interesting. -hmm. You also talked about factors that lead folks to burn. uh, Other factors that lead folks to burn out, and that that you actually um, are someone who has some life experience that has makes you more prone towards it. Can you talk about that for a minute? Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and this is very much the focus of of my next project and my graduate research right now, which is what what are the factors that contribute to burnout that are beyond you? Because as I'm I'm becoming more and more comfortable saying that the reason why people burn out, at least in the occupational sense, is because of factors mostly outside of their control. And I briefly touched upon this. I had the right idea, but it was a ro- low-resolution idea in the burnout gamble. I used two acronyms in particular. I used Castle and Pepsi. So CASEL, C-A-S-T-L-E, stands for these exogenous factors, so big, so outside of our control, but that we're all living in relation to, and they are global levels of competition, profound feelings of alienation, societal pressures, technology, loneliness, which is a huge Mm. contributing factor to burnout, and an uncertain economy. So these are factors mostly outside of our control. And what they do is they continuously move the goalposts. So even if we achieve some modicum of success, the castle factors will ensure that that's not enough. And When we're not enough for the world in which we're trying to achieve some sort of significance, we end up working harder and harder and harder. And we internalize our feelings of not being enough as performance pressure. And then this is where the second acronym, Pepsi comes into use. Progress, efficiency, perfection, satisfaction, and innovation as these elusive end states. We're all waking up every day feeling like we're not perfect enough. We're not efficient enough. We're not progressive enough. We're not satisfied enough. And we're not innovative enough. Now, layering into that, Performance pressure comes the six upstream factors, which were advanced by Dr. Christina Maslach, one of the pioneers of burnout as we understand it today. And she actually has one of my favorite quotes about burnout. She says that um, workplaces can be very unhealthy environments. If you take a plant and put it in lousy soil and put it in the dark and don't give it enough water and sun, I don't care how gorgeous the plant was to begin with, it isn't going to thrive. And her research involves looking at six upstream factors which influence burnout downstream. And these are all things which fall within the purview of leaders. So as nonprofit leaders listening to this, we have to accept that we might be contributing. We are most likely contributing to the factors that are causing our frontline staff to burn out. This can include insufficient reward, lack of fair compensation or any compensation at all. This could be a toxic workplace community. This could be, you know, not enough constructive criticism, so on and so forth. And I'm happy to provide all six of these to include in the show notes as well. Great. But yeah, in a nutshell, you know, for me, it was being a first generation student. It was being born and raised in priority neighborhoods uh, in lower socioeconomic circumstances. It was identifying as a racialized minority at a time when our, uh, understanding of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. I mean, there's so many factors that made me feel like I had to prove myself, and so that compulsion to prove myself is is a uh, you know feature, uh, out of the box feature with me.
0: Thank you for all of that. that super helpful. We are talking with Hamza Khan. Who is an award-winning marketer, an author, global keynote speaker, and really has both? I think from his own experience uh, as someone who has burned, has you know experienced burnout at its twelfth stage, and then used it as a teachable moment for himself and for all of us about what that looks like. What are the contributing factors and what are the keys? And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about those keys. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com Slash podcast. That's nonprofit leadership com slash podcast. So Hamza, I, I think people are listening and you have them at hello. They see themselves, <laughs> they're hearing things that really resonate for them, and now they want your help. Can I nip it in the bud? Can I preempt it? I'm prone to be a type A kind of person. Offer me some guidance. Uh, First, as just a human being, what are, in your mind, the keys to avoiding burnout?
1: Okay, so first, as a human being, great question. Let's make this simple. First, acknowledge that there is such a thing as burnout. I think it's not a, mi- I mean, sorry, I, let me let me rephrase this. And I, I was just thrown off by a memory early in my speaking career about burnout. When I published the book and I was doing this global tour, I was in Bulgaria of all places and I did a talk on burnout and this guy comes up to me afterwards, like seven foot, uh-huh. scars all over his face. looks like he had just, he had seen some shit, <laughs> pardon my language. <laughs> and he comes up to me and he says in a very thick Bulgarian accent, I don't think this is real. Right. Sorry. That was a terrible Bulgarian accent. That's
0: okay. It was an accent. And- so it's okay.
1: But, but let me, let me let me add to the character over here. He's like, "Hamza, I see what you were saying, but uh, burnout is not real. I've been in a war, I've been a prisoner of war. There's no such thing as burnout." And I didn't have an answer for him in that moment because I was just so taken by that statement, but also considering that, you know, you could endure a level of stress that might not convert to burnout because you are so resilient. Right. But again, here we are. Seven years later, the World Health Organization has said that stress is the health epidemic of the 21st century. Today, 3,000 people will die from working too hard in China alone. And every year, the number of people who die from work-related stress and injury increases. This year, it was 2.8 million people. That's wild when you think about it. This year, 2.8 million people died from working too hard, from dying for a paycheck. And if you're doing the math, that's more than twice the amount of deaths caused by COVID-19. But with not even a fraction of the attention and the urgency with which we dealt with the COVID pandemic. So I'm really grateful that you're giving us a platform here, Joan, to speak about burnout. And for those of us who are listening to this are coming to the understanding that, oh my goodness, I might be experiencing burnout or I might be at risk of experiencing burnout. The first thing that you can do is accept that you can go from a place of being stressed out to being burned out. And when you're in burnout mode, it's very dangerous. So understand, first of all, the language of burnout, the concepts associated with burnout, burnout as a syndrome, and then familiarize yourself with some of the assessments of burnout, the 12 stages of burnout by Dr. Herbert Friedenberger and Dr. Gail North is very helpful. The Holmes and Ross Stress Index is very helpful. And then also Christina Maslach, six upstream factors are really helpful to understanding the distinction between everyday run-of-the-mill stress and burnout. And then I think it's really simple. My way of synthesizing all of these different models is to think of your well-being as a car dashboard, if you will. And it has three gauges, your physical health, your emotional health, and your mental health. And understand that there's hot, because when you think about burnout as a syndrome, a collection of symptoms, there's different ways in which burnout could present, but you're looking for a combination of failings, for lack of a better word, in all three of those dimensions.
0: In those three categories. Yeah.
1: In, In those three gauges. So, so do that. Like first really just understand burnout as a concept, understand how to spot it with yourself and with others, and try to familiarize yourself with some of the literature. It doesn't have to be an extensive process. And then I'll say, you know, once you've Gain the basic understanding of burnout. Then it's time to move into some proactive solutions. And I advanced six different strategies in the burnout gamble, and they all fall within the acronym of Dragon D R A G O N. And I, I chose Dragon intentionally. And I'll be honest, when I first put this together, it was D R A G X N. So I came very close, but with a little <laughs> bit of you know English literature massaging, I was able to turn that X into an O, and and the metaphor works out very well because. Overachievers behave like phoenixes. you know, you burn bright, you burn out, you burn bright, you burn out, you burn bright, you burn out. And you hope to reemerge from the ashes every single time. But it's in the long term counterproductive because you will, there there will come a time when you won't be able to reemerge from the ashes. And the dragon, on the other hand, is a mythical creature that is in control of its fire. So what is a dragon method very quickly? The D stands for deload priorities. So when you're going through burnout, the first thing you need to do is to create some space to recover. And this requires minimizing the demands on your time, your energy, and your attention as best as you can. The R stands for reconfigure focus. When we're going through burnout, we lose sense of where we're going. We become disoriented. We can't fixate on the North star. So reconnect with your why, if you will. A is assemble boundaries over things uh, around things that cause burnout in the first place. So this is about learning how to give out respectful no's, about safeguarding your time, your energy, and your attention through systems. The G stands for gain mastery over stress, and we touched about it, touched on this uh, a little earlier, Joan, when we talked about the di- distinction between good stress and bad stress. The O is about overcoming overachievement. And this is the hardest thing I found with leaders because yeah. we're so prone to burnout because of the mentality that we have. We want to be in control. We want to, we, we pride ourselves on being productive in expressing ourselves through our work. But we have to accept that good and on time is better than perfect. And I actually love what you said earlier, Joan, your best and highest self. I think that if you were to meditate on those two attributes, you naturally overcome overachievement. And I think so much of that is about defining what the word enough means. And the last bit is the most important part for beating burnout in the future. It's about inoculating yourself against burnout. This is nurturing resilience. Mm. And so much about resilience happens after the fact. You can't really learn about resilience. You can't read a book that will make you more resilient. You actually have to go through experiences and actively reflect on them. And this could include journaling, gratitude, meditation. The community that you've built over here with the Nonprofit Leadership Lab is a great way to cultivate resilience by sharing resources, that sort of thing. So that would be it, the two-part process. Familiarize yourself with burnout as a concept and then develop some proactive strategies. And the Dragon Method is just one framework.
0: The Dragon Method is, I think it's actually terrific. And, you know, don't you think that it's true that people don't realize how resilient they are until they reflect on it? You know, I, right, is, is to think back. Oftentimes you don't, you're not thinking about it building resilience when you're going through something. But if you look back and say, is there a time that was really difficult for me and I came out of it stronger as a result? If you don't take the time to actually reflect on that, you'll actually miss the fact that you in fact are resilient. Right. And (laughs) because I, I do think Reflection is something that gets lost in the shuffle for overachievers and high performers. I don't, I don't, I don't have time for that because yep. I need to go do the doing and right. uh, being thoughtful, trying to get a little bit more self-aware. It feels really, really important. The last thing before we leave, I want to tie this all together, and I want, sure. I'd love for you to talk about. What it means to lead an organization that has a culture, what is it,, you know, what has to be true in order for me as a nonprofit leader, to create a culture? That doesn't, honestly, that doesn't value burnout, that doesn't, mm. right? Because I, I, I think there are organizations where you feel like you have to overwork because that's what's expected, yep. or the clients demand it, or the donors demand it. Right. If I'm, a, speak to the leaders out there and offer this, is the, something would be so valuable for them to hear is, what has to be true in order for me to build the right culture? to av- avoid me or my team members getting into these stages of burnout?
1: Brilliant question and uh, the perfect one with which to end this conversation. It's it's truly a synthesis of what I perceive to be two disparate dis- disciplines in my career. The first being occupational burnout and stress and wellness and the other being organizational leadership, but they are more connected than we think. And the COVID-19 pandemic has offered us a great opportunity to reflect and change our trajectory here. And uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of or might even be dealing with what they're calling the Great Resignation, this ongoing trend of people leaving their careers voluntarily from as early, dating back to as early as the spring of 2021. And uh, it would be a huge mistake to accept the mainstream narrative of this being an employee-led you know, or, or let, let me rephrase this: this this being some sort of like shortcoming of employee productivity right. and resilience, and like people are leaving because it's easier for them to collect stimulus checks or whatever the case may be. That's all horseshit. This is not a labor shortage, this is a bad leader surplus, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And I, I can back this up all day, every day. I've got all the stats, all the reports ready to go for anybody listening to this who wants to heap the blame on the employees. This is not a great resignation. This is a great awakening. Employees are wisening up to this realization that uh, there are some bad actors out there that are operating from a place of fear. And uh, you know, I don't want to say bad because so many of them are inadvertently operating from a place of fear and relying on this outdated playbook, the Theory X style of management, a remnant from the 20th century, that was rooted in a zero sum war context that we're still trying to apply to solve the world's collective problems today. There's no zero sum when it comes to solving the climate change crisis. There's no zero sum when it comes to addressing poverty, when it comes to the social determinants of health and all the different focus points for our nonprofit leaders here. So what does it take to lead an organization like yours for the future of work? It's the same thing that I'm seeing in a very reassuring way, happening across the board, with for profits, with uh, non profits, uh, you know, organizations are advancing this idea that it has to be about other people. It can't be about profits. We have to put people before profits. And I think that there's a couple of different attributes here that are going to be integral to the toolkit for leading through uncertainty, especially as a nonprofit leader. The first one is. this this all ties back to burnout because this is how you create a burnout-proof culture is by fundamentally changing what you value in an organization. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is learning. Always be learning. And this is not just about helping your employees to learn for the job. This is about you as a leader learning about your employees as well. Assuming the the position of asking questions, asking for feedback versus directing versus micromanaging. This is about including people in the decision-making process of learning about the inside of your organization as well as the outside.
0: Mm -hmm. So gaining
1: as much information as you possibly can. So the first would be learning. Mm -hmm. And this, what this does for you is it increases your situational awareness. The second would be, and I don't know the word for it, but it's the opposite of selfishness, maybe otherishness. (laughs) It's about truly leading from the inside out, about wanting for other people what you want for yourself. And that's a really hard thing to do. It's an advanced stage of the golden rule, which is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's actually wanting for others what you want for yourself.
0: I see. And, uh,
1: you know, it's about treating your employees like owners, even though they might not be owners. And maybe the logical conclusion is you fundamentally change your business model so that they do become owners at some right. point. Right. So that would be the second component of the four that I have in mind. The third is vulnerability. Oh my goodness. COVID has forced even the most stubborn of leaders to take a step back, to sit in their homes and say, I'm having a tough time and I'm not, uh, this stalwart, you know, uh, battle hardened leader, I'm a father, I'm a mother. I'm um, I'm somebody who's scared. I'm at home. I'm just like you. We're the same. you know we're when we strip away the titles and all of the other superficial markers of success, we're we're just human beings experiencing adversity. So opening yourself up to potential to develop bonds through narrative and shared experiences, uh, that would be the third vulnerability. And then the last one, perhaps the most important one is empathy. <laughs> empathy is described as the hardest of soft skills, but I, I describe it as uh, not even a soft skill. I think that's uh, devaluing it completely. Empathy is as technical as it gets. Empathy is about standing in somebody else's shoes, yep. seeing with their eyes, feeling with their heart, assuming their position. And if you have been listening astutely, listeners, these four elements, they form a very convenient acronym, L-O-V-E, learning, othering, otherishness, vulnerability, and empathy. So there's nicely something nicely
0: done there, Hamza.
1: There you go, right? The the prevailing emotion that has guided the evolution of society up until this point has been fear. But what if we could replace fear with some sort of non-romantic love? That's what I would challenge the nonprofit listeners to think about as you move forward. How can you love your employees truly? How can you love the communities that you serve?
0: Yeah, that is an awfully good place to leave it. Had a meeting the other day, and there were I don't know about six or seven of us. And we began the meeting with, "Okay, uh, let me know if your light is red, yellow, or green." Mm. Right, red is I'm out of you know kind of out of gas. Uh, I'm not prepared for this as prepared for this meeting as I wanted to, uh, or I'm skeptical about it. Yellow is. Uh, uh, I'm not so sure. (laughs) And green is that my gas tank is full. And it's a a very good, easy way. It takes two seconds to start a meeting. Everybody put in the chat what color they are. And it actually, it. it is a simple, simple, simple way to say I care about you and I want to know how you're coming to this meeting. There's no, you know, Brilliant. you don't you don't lose points if you if you put red in the chat. And actually, there was a meeting earlier this week where I came into this meeting and they said, is there some color brighter than green? Because you, I don't know what you're on, but like you are. And so then I I was, then of course, I started to feel bad that I was like too green, you know? (laughs) Um, I have really enjoyed this conversation very much. And and the, the reason I have enjoyed it is because it's both a philosophical conversation I am very smitten by your concept that it isn't a great resignation, but rather a dearth of leadership. Um, and I hope that people will really reflect on that. Think about organizations where there is no attrition or where attrition is very low. What's happening in that organization? So many. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And th- those are places to take a look at. Right. I wanted to say thank you, Hamza for joining us wow. today, wow. and I wanted to say welcome, welcome to the United States. I'm I'm glad hey. you're just across the river now for me. And um, thank you. And I hope we can uh, I hope we can continue our conversation. Maybe when your next book comes out.
1: Absolutely, Joan. You inspire me and millions of others to do what we do, knowing that you're here, that you're leading this community of nonprofit leaders is deeply inspiring, and I thank you sincerely. Uh, for inviting me to be part of this community uh, as a speaker, now as a podcast guest. And I hope to continue to serve and uh, take your lead.
0: Well, thanks. I um I've, I think I made it pretty clear that that it this work generally kind of fuels me. although speaking of fuel, I could probably get some lunch and I want to, hey. <laughs> I don't want to neglect that need. So um amen. <laughs> uh, Hamza settle in. I look forward to seeing you next time with some pictures on your walls. And um, Absolutely. for those of you who are listening, oh, I really hope you take some of the things that Hamza has said today to heart. That this is that you may be, what you may be experiencing may not just be, oh, I'm just a high performer. Really think about it. We'll put the things that, that he referenced in the show notes. Reflect, really give it some thought. Where are you really at? And think about some of the ideas that he has generated about how your leadership can make a difference. So, thank you so much for listening. And as always, thank you so much for the work you do every day. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.